staying in my heart, in my heart, I'm not afraid. I can tell you anything I need to say, you know, it's when I get up in my head and I get in my brain and all those chemicals are firing and it's like, <clears throat> if I am true to myself, I'm going to lose something. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Welcome to a very special bonus rebroadcast episode of my recent appearance on the Thought Room podcast recorded at Soltara in Costa Rica at the end of a week-long ayahuasca retreat. In this conversation with host Hallie Rosebud, we discussed the profound spiritual healing and awakenings I experienced during the four ceremonies that week. We also discussed sexual and emotional trauma, addiction recovery and its relationship to plant medicines, and the paradoxical phenomenon of some people being struck sober through such experiences. The fact that the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, explored the therapeutic use of LSD later in his life to assist in his recovery, the root of people-pleasing as it relates to low self-worth, how I discovered the solution to existential loneliness, the role of the heart in finding our way home to ourselves, how our birth experience can color our entire lives thereafter, how I performed psychic brain surgery on myself during ceremony. How I discovered how to embrace and care for my inner child as a mature adult. How I learned to reconcile empathy, compassion, and healthy boundaries with others. The trap of spiritual bypass. Why we fear healthy confrontation with others. How to heal limbic system trauma loops. The benefits and risks of microdosing psilocybin and LSD. My past life rooted attraction to the teachings and teachers of India. The folly of attempting sobriety while still smoking weed. And finally, the spiritual awakening I had the morning I woke up in rehab. This is one of the most vulnerable and intimate conversations I've ever had. And while it's a bit nerve-wracking to publish it, I feel that it might be helpful to listeners who are working to overcome similar challenges of life and spiritual growth. So enjoy the show, and if you find it beneficial, please share it with someone you love, and make sure to click subscribe on your podcast player so you don't miss this Tuesday's episode number 284, Psychedelic Psychiatry and Cosmic Connections with Dr. David Rabin. Luke Story, welcome to the Thought Room Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. I love thoughts and I love rooms. <laughs> Wonderful. We're off to a great start. <laughs> so we're here at Soltara Healing Center this week and you're a guest here. And as I understand it, you've had this, this concluded last night, I suppose, was your eighth ceremony with ayahuasca. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And Inside of one year. Inside of one year. So we're in December right now. I just realized this when I got here because mm-hmm. I don't, once something passes, I have no idea what year it took place. Right. <laughs> Not a linear time aware person. <laughs> uh, but our, our, my friend Dominic, who's also here, mm. was at um, the last ceremonies that I did with me. And he was like, oh, that was in January. So. And that was at Rhythmia. Mm-hmm. That was 11 months ago. Yeah. Wow. So 11 months, eight ayahuasca ceremonies. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm ready to dive in with you. I'm really excited to hear kind of, I guess, the trajectory of, of how you feel that's affected your life. But maybe we want to start with right now, last day of the retreat, kind of a nice day to decompress. 
maybe some thoughts and things starting to settle. We had our final sharing um, circle this morning at 10 a.m. And you shared some really beautiful thoughts. So maybe if you just want to start with what's feeling most potent for you in this moment and um, your experience here this week at Soltar, and we can go from there. Man, it's so multifaceted. In many ways, there are so many nuances to it. But I think the overall theme has been twofold. One is really in a very concrete way, understanding that the solution to any sense of isolation or loneliness or needing other people's love, validation, appreciation, although it's it's totally normal and natural to need those. But without me really having a home in my heart, then I've had the tendency at times in all kinds of relationships to sort of abandon myself and sell myself short because I don't want to face not being liked or accepted. And, um, and then I was able to kind of trace that back that that whole pattern and i think a lot of it has to do with just asserting myself and keeping my own sense of autonomy mm. and not being apologetic for being who and what i am mm-hmm. unless it's warranted and i'm being a dick <laughs> right. there's always a time for amends but um i've noticed a pattern in my life of a, feeling a bit disconnected from people at large and going back way early on into my early childhood uh, feeling, yeah, just feeling this existential loneliness, just kind of like alone in the universe. And even in familial relationships and in school early on, I just never, I never felt a part of. And so my early and quite longstanding coping mechanism for that sense was to connect to drugs. And that's how I found a sense of home within myself and a sense of comfort when I was alone because I had that as a friend and a way to alter the way that I felt exogenously. Mm -hmm. And so I think this week has been really looking into... I, I was doing a lot of inquiry, like Q&A, just praying to God, praying to the medicine, praying to my higher self. It's kind of all the same thing. Um, so I've kind of, you know, I've got stuck on like, well, who's giving me these answers? Is that ayahuasca? Is that the God? You know, <laughs> right. or is it is it my higher self? And it's it's all of those. It's I think it's contextually speaking in the macro, it is God as a whole or spirit. And sometimes those messages seem to come through the consciousness of the medicine or the consciousness of my higher self. But what really started to come become clear uh, in, I think it was yesterday's ceremony, was that I've always been looking for a sense of family. And so I was kind of praying about that. Is it, is what's missing? Is that feeling I have? Because I don't have a wife and kids and like have that nuclear family unit that I, I never really experienced for any you know extended period of time as, as a kid I left home at 14 and you know that was that was it you know and so um, 
And the answer came back. It's like, no, it's not that. They, they can't fix you. You can't get a sense of feeling at home because you add people to you. It's like, that would be more, um, home is where the heart is. You know, it's like, you'd have to have like this cozy house and people in it for you to feel in your heart in that situation. And so the phrase that came to me, which ended up really kind of being unpacked into a much deeper meaning was heart is where the home is. Hmm. And so it became so concrete and tangible to me that that sense of not all the time, but an underlying aura of isolation even with people, just, I mean, I'm a people person. I'm an extrovert and I'm pretty alpha and like emotionally in tune and able to access empathy and compassion and really feel into people. But at the same time, there's often this sense of separation. And so it had a lot to do with just the application of that truth as a takeaway of just really staying within my own heart and having a true sense of self and belonging and contentment within me and really finding my home within my heart. I mean, even my physical heart and ethereal art, both. And that when that's present, then the addition of other into that space will never compromise my own integrity and my own self-love and self-worth to the point where I then abandon myself to keep that security from other mm. and so it's like a a very profound realization that yes we need people and i need people and i'm there's nothing wrong with needing people we need hugs we need sex we need affection we need understanding we need to be heard we need to hear others we need community we need connection and i think in my life that connection was always being substituted in one way or another you know um and there have been of course, real connections too, but it was like, ah, the primary connection is to the self. And then that sort of led me back to thinking about, well, why didn't I ever develop that <laughs> sense of that sense of self? And, and then I could go back to my very earliest um, abuse as a kid when I was five or six. And there was a lot of it throughout my childhood and adolescence and even into my adult life to some degree. Um, in the adult life, more so brought on myself, <laughs> whereas as a kid, I was an innocent bystander, you know. Uh, but it's that my innocence was robbed so young that my inner sense hmm. was not developed. Hmm. And that's how the medicine works with me through words. There's always these double meanings and these stacks of different applications of the words like a verb will turn into a noun and vice versa and the whole language gets kind of jumbled up and so I thought yeah and I had that realization last time I had this deep experience of of losing my innocence as a little boy and really felt through that it's not something I've been suppressing or not looked at I mean I've been to therapy I've done all the things to deal with that in you know out there in the, in the I was supposed to say the real world. I don't know which one's real right now at this point. I think they're both quite real. But um, yeah, it's not like I've never delved into that or felt those feelings and cried and written and prayed and you know, sort of inventoried my life and looked at the chain of events that led me into such a self-destructive path. But that 
inner sense, innocence connection was really huge because I could see that's kind of where where it was lost. Mm-hmm. And then going back to January's ceremony, one of them, uh, I experienced in a very brief and subtle way my birth and sort of just had a really quick little vision of it. And I wasn't even in that kind of hallucinatory state of the medicine. It was actually a night where I didn't really feel anything. I was just kind of bored and my mind was wandering. And I sort of had this vision of my birth and I was born and they, the nurses grabbed me from my mom and threw me down the hall in this um, uh, incubator. And then they just shut the door and left me in there alone. And it was like, oh shit, that was the first abandonment. And I thought well, maybe that was just a dream or a fantasy that night and I texted my mom the next day and she said, oh no, that's exactly what happened when you were born. I was like, whoa, holy shit. She's like, yeah, they left you in there for three or four days and no one could touch you or come in there because there was a risk of infection or something. And so even then coming out into the world was this sense of isolation, mm. you know, cause you're not isolated in the womb. It's like, you are your mother, you're part of her. But when you're out, if I, I, I get the sense that if you're not, immediately swooped up and held and made to feel safe and made to feel connected and a sense of belonging, that it (laughs) is likely difficult to establish that later. And especially if there's an onslaught of trauma and abuse that comes within those next few years, you know? So Mm. that's been a huge revelation. And there's, you know, there's of course more and I'm sure I'll sure we'll get into it, but it's just like seeing that seeing that thread from day zero, or I guess day zero out of the you know the womb and into the cradle of the material plane, is that there's been a sense of being alone, and then not a sense of being at home within myself because I didn't know how to access that, hmm. and so much futile effort has been spent tried to achieve that sense of connection from the outside in through people, through control, controlling how I feel, controlling my environment. And even after, you know, escaping narrowly from a life of drug addiction and quite possibly and likely prison and that whole, you know, the trajectory that I was on, um, is now I'm really seeing that so clearly, seeing that thread and seeing how that manifests. And and going back to the day when we set our intentions, my intention really was to see, you know, looking back at some of my relationships and business and friends and romance and all ways that I've interacted with other people, there have been many occasions where I've put myself in harm's way and remained in situations that were hurting me where I was treated poorly and I, and I stayed for that mm. for periods of time, in some cases, many years, mm. you know, out of fear of being abandoned and left alone again. Yeah. You said something this morning that was, I forgave myself for not standing up for myself. Wow. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think when I was going back and just looking at myself as a kid and those early situations in which I was powerless over my environment and circumstances and had no way to defend myself. I don't know that I blamed myself for that, but it was just like, oh God, little Luke, I was kind of just talking to that 
kid just going, dude, like, what, what were you going to do? The grownups are abusing you. You're, you're a little kid. You can't, there's no defense for that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and then also forgiveness as an adult when I did have a choice, but see what I find is that those trauma imprints in the brain and the physical brain, and I guess kind of in consciousness and mind too, to some degree are so deeply rooted that even as an adult, when I have full authority to take care of myself and have healthy boundaries and walk away or confront people when they're inappropriate or something like that, I was still living from that little boy inside that still didn't know how to find a voice. And so I had to forgive my adult self as a man. Now I'm almost 50 years old and I'm like, fuck, I still have that little boy in me from those early scars that is afraid to say, you know what? Fuck you. And just walk from any situation that's not serving me or a situation in which I'm not being honored or mm. respected. And so it's not about the, it's not about those people and being a victim. It's about me going, shit, I need to take responsibility for myself because mm. I'm not a little boy anymore. You know, now I know better. And, um, you know, having to forgive myself for that. And then also I just did a lot of, I don't know, it's crazy. It's crazy, but it's not. But I, you know, I really went into that inner child and just, you know, kind of forgave him and myself and just said, we're not going to come from that perspective anymore from those early experiences. We're starting at a new turning point now in a new paradigm where adult Luke is going to handle shit and is going to be more discerning and have more prudence and more wisdom and be less naive, less gullible. Mm. And, um, you know, yeah, and you all, clear you also, up the rose colored glasses a little bit, you know, because I give, yeah. I really give people the, the benefit of the doubt. And, I really see the purity even in the most wretched folks <laughs> because I just know what's underneath that. And I know anyone that's hurting people has been hurt. And so I see that hurt kid within the perpetrator mm. uh, as it, as it were. And so it's like, I've always just been like, well, that's, that's not the real them. So I can just love on the real them. And eventually like, they're going to feel that I'm authentically loving who they are. When I look in their eyes, I see like their lifetimes, I see their, genes i see their past i see their trauma like in some level i really feel into that and i think well once they once they see that i see then only the good will come out and that's not always the case because people still karmically have to work through all of their demons in order to be able to activate and um and embody their higher true divine self so one of the other like <laughs> plays on words was um I, you know, I was kind of, again, asking questions and looking and I thought, well, what the reason that sometimes I get in a situation like that is because I, I see someone's soul, you know, I, and aren't you supposed to do that? It's like what I'm supposed to see the surface, them, their personality, mind, ego, that's not who they are. I want to get to the real person as quickly as possible and like really suss that out. And the, the answer that I got back was, yes, Luke see the soul, but also see the whole. Hmm. As in, 
W-H-O-L-E, see the whole, see the whole picture of mm-hmm. not just people, but in any situation, you know, in other words, like grow, grow up and, you know, don't be, don't blindfold yourself by, you know, wishful thinking about a situation or a person mm-hmm. or how it's going to go. And then it was like, yeah, see the soul, but also see the whole H-O-L-E, meaning see what's missing Mm-hmm. in that person or environment or situation in that deal or whatever kind of arrangement it is that's causing my life to be feeling um, unmanageable mm-hmm. and causing me harm. It's like, no, don't ignore the, the darkness. Um, it needs to be acknowledged and then I can make better decisions with full knowledge of the complete picture rather than just seeing kind of what I want to see or having this sort of... Um, highest view of everyone's innocence, even though everyone is ultimately innocent at their core, people also have a lot of shit. Mm. And so do I. And, and I've been practicing for a long time, seeing my whole shit. I know that I, there are elements of me that are quite divine. And there's also elements that are still selfish and full of shit and lazy and procrastinate and <laughs> I do all kinds of dumb stuff mm-hmm. less and less of it you know as time goes on but I've, I've arrived there from really inventorying myself and I guess the message is like sometimes it's important to inventory other people too mm-hmm. not in a judgmental way because that implies that there's something wrong with them but in an observational way it's like observing that wow that wall needs to be painted is not going who's the fucking dumbass that painted that wall right. shouldn't be like that mm-hmm well, it just is like that. That's an observation. Observation is just having an awareness of something without a sense of negative judgment on it. So that's yeah. a little, you know, that's a little, that's a sliver of like yeah, what's, no what's transpired this week. It's, it's crazy. I, I think this is probably going to resonate with a lot of people who are on this path, uh, this path, meaning spiritual development or personal growth, because this idea of it's, it, in my opinion, it's almost like spiritually bypassing ourselves, you know? And yeah. and what I mean by well that said. is always taking the higher road and going, oh, well, they're just in a process or, oh, they're doing this. And I'm going to speak from my own perspective, but sometimes I don't allow myself to fully feel the feelings as they bubble up in a situation. So, you know, someone will do something and I'll go, oh, they're just they're doing them or they're, you know, not there yet. Or I just have to send love, send love, send love. But later on down the road, I'll go, oh, I was, I was really angry about that. And yes, I'm this soul. I'm this being going through this experience, but I'm in a human body and I have chemicals that get triggered and emotional reactions that get stored in my body. And I'm doing a disservice to myself by not letting the river flow through to the ocean, as in having the feeling, acknowledging it, not punishing it, not going, oh, you shouldn't feel angry. Go meditate more. It's like, just allow it to come up and, and experience it. So I think other people, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people who really are trying to figure out the nuances of, of that same dance. It's a, yeah, it's, it is a form of spiritual bypass. I think, you know, for me, it's not that I don't mind feeling feelings. I've gotten decent at allowing feelings to manifest and work through them because it's so painful to avoid them. I think what's been difficult for me is the element of confrontation Hmm. and really standing up for myself. Mm -hmm. 
And you nailed it when you talked about the chemicals in the body, because that's what was going on last night. It was like, I was tracing back those sort of patterns that I just described. And then there was clarity about that, but it still left me with a sense, okay, I get it. I see the framework of this phenomenon, but how do I fucking fix it? Like, Mm. how do I, how do I not do that? How do I walk in a room and go, you know what? Fuck this. Nope. Not happening. I have a really hard time doing that in some situations, Mm -hmm. not always, but there are times I thought, why am I so, why am I so afraid of just standing up for myself and having a voice, you know? And, and then I saw, I started to go, I was in that place where it's like no time and just, you know, that space. Matrix. Yeah, yeah it's void. just like, oh shit. And I'm in the quantum, really feels like the quantum <laughs> yeah. field. And it's, there's no even like my mind, it's just higher mind and higher self is in this field and there are answers and I'm able to navigate into other realms in there and actually do things intentionally. And so... I saw that that, you know, the root of that fear comes from being a kid, being terrified, being subjected to rage, anger, violence, sexual abuse, all of those things that are so damaging to the brain. And so I could see in the limbic system that there were these stored memories of instances such as the ones I just described. So you could actually see this. Yeah. So So in the hippocampus, I think it's called hippocampus, (laughs) hypercampus, no hippocampus, I believe it's called. And I could botch this. This is what came to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is what happened. And then, so those memories get stored in there in the subconscious, they're way back there and they're in a bank. And then in adult life, when a situation that's similar happens, there's a signal between the hippocampus and the amygdala and the amygdala goes back to the hippocampus to find a point of reference for a similar experience or feeling. Mm. And when it gets it, it locks onto that and then squirts out adrenaline and cortisol into your fucking bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And then you're in fight or flight. Then you're, well, I don't, I don't typically fight until it builds up for a while. And then I will lose my shit in in a very healthy way that actually feels really good because I finally can't take it anymore. And I find my voice, but what I usually do is I freeze, you know, I'm just like, if they can't see me, I can't see them. And that freezing is a response to that limbic system overreacting to a situation that doesn't warrant that. It's like, all I need to do is like tell the guy next to me in the parking lot, Hey man, would you mind parking a little further away? You know, you're about to scratch my car. So mm-hmm. something like that. And I'm like, Oh, I can't say anything. Like, I, you know, I don't want to get in a fight. Like, I don't want uh, bad vibes. Like, ah, it's okay. I'll just leave it. Like people pleasing and mm-hmm. shit like that, you know? And so when I started to see the the anatomy of the brain and the source of those memories and how that works, at least how I was shown, anyone with a deeper understanding of the brain listening might correct me and please do, but it doesn't really matter, you know, if I have the names and the, the different components of the of the brain right, but I'm pretty sure it works something like that. And so I actually went in there and I was doing this psychic surgery on my brain and I was removing the connection between those thought forms and subconscious memories 
in the hippocampus, there's a hypothalamus, hippocampus, I think a hippocampus, disconnecting those from the amygdala and then like surgically moving them away, those connections, and then also lovingly and compassionately communicating with the amygdala and just saying, hey, listen, I really appreciate that you've been doing your best to keep me alive in the following ways. (laughs) But when you see a situation (laughs) that is familiar, you go back and grab one of those other memories and then you make that connection and you fill me full of chemicals. And I know you're doing it because you love me and you, you want to protect me and you want me to be ready to be poised to fight, fight or flee or freeze. But I don't need you to do that anymore because I'm a grown ass man now. I only need you to do that when I'm about to get in a car accident or hit by a train or miss a flight or when I really have to mobilize my faculties legitimately for something that is real that's happening now. Not something that is an imagined now that if I confront myself in a situation or stand up for myself that I'm going to be hurt or abandoned or violated or whatever the case may be. And so I just said, listen, you, you can work like one eighth as hard as you do right now. Just, I just need you there in a real emergency, but you're free to go. Just let it go. It's okay. We're safe, you know? And then this went on for a while of just like really going in and just I don't know. It's a psychic surgery. The only way I can explain it, you know, and then it's like, well, let's see if it worked. I don't know if, you know, if the surgery was, was uh, successful or not. I've not been in a situation in which I'm triggered. And I imagine, you know, realistically, I will quite possibly experience situations in which I'm triggered, but I do have a sense now that I'm going to give less fucks about what other people think when I need to take care of myself. Mm. And in finding my voice, it also occurred to me that in the last four years or so that I've been doing what I do professionally now, which is what I'm doing right now, is I use my voice. That's who I am. I'm, I talk, you know? And so it's a matter of applying that, the authenticity that I'm able to access in moments like this, where I know that I'm being real and authentic in situations that are scarier, I want to be able to and know that I am able to bring that same authenticity and be my true self and not hide aspects of myself or feelings that I have or opinions that I have or being able to stop a situation that's not serving me. And then there was another play on words. Like, like As soon as I was like, yeah, sometimes I hide, you know, like I don't let people see like what I'm really feeling. If something bothers me, I don't say anything because I don't want the conflict and I don't want to be abandoned. I don't want to be disliked. And so I just put up with shit. And um, I said, yeah, don't hide. Don't be like chupacabras, you know, chupacabras is out there hiding in the jungle. And then, then the thought came to me, it's like, don't be Luca Cabras. <laughs> just fucking <laughs> come out good. with it, you know, just do you. Yeah. And if people don't like it or can't hang, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. peace to the East. They're not, <laughs> they're not my people. Mm. You know, if they can't handle uh, my truth, that's legitimate, you know? So yeah, it's, I, you know, I didn't, it's like, I'm coming through this week going, geez, I thought I had pretty decent self-esteem, <laughs> you know, but it's like, wow, there's a lot of mm. limitation mm-hmm. that's been placed on myself because of that chemical reaction that takes place, you know, and I'm so afraid of feeling that, that oftentimes I am, I'm not true to myself and I leave myself. 
And that goes back full circle to that staying in my heart, in my heart. I'm not afraid. I can tell you anything I need to say. You know, it's when I get up in my head and I get in my brain and all those chemicals are firing. And it's like, <clears throat> if I am true to myself, I'm going to lose something mm. or not get something that I want. You know, those two primary fears. I'm going to lose something that I have. I'm not going to get something that I want. That's the fear. It's just like, okay, just freeze. Just stay still. Don't move. You know, yeah, and that's a very I, paralyzing experience to have, especially when you're in a situation where you're being hurt or wronged or mistreated mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, I think those are our basic survival instincts, you know, and, and like you said, you just embrace them and you talk lovingly to them. And I think that's, I mean, that's beautiful. That's incredible. I want to go back to what you were saying about this kind of deep, sort of ubiquitous loneliness that you were feeling as as a child and how that spiraled into your eventual you said you know drugs but i'm assuming you mean using recreationally and i want to ask for you coming from that journey entering into something 11 months ago like ayahuasca <laughs> that's quite a leap and, well yeah i mean you had this experience you know with drugs and yeah. This, for a lot of people listening, would consider it a drug. Other people would consider it a medicine. So I'm curious about your perspective and how you were able to kind of bridge that gap to take a deep dive into doing something potentially pretty scary. Well, when I did ayahuasca in January, at that time, I was a month away from being 22 years sober. I mean, like sober, sober. You know, no drugs, no alcohol. No, 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 no. A hard no. Just that's just, I just don't do that, you know. And so, uh, it was no accident that it took me 22 years to explore that because I really had to, there was a curiosity about it, but never really a desire. So, I didn't have to examine it that hard. But when the curiosity started to sort of well, because I would just hear more stories and it became more prevalent in some circles that I roam in, not so much with sober people. In fact, there was only one sober person that I knew of that had done it. And I remember hearing about that and I was like, oh, that guy's using. Like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, he's not, he's not sober anymore. He did ayahuasca. I was like, whoa, stay away from that guy. Like that's bad news kind of thing. You know, this is many, many years ago. Wow. But then over the years, I started getting little bits of information and I'm hearing people's insights. And I started, my curiosity started to sort of hit this, crest of subtle desire you know it's like hmm i wonder if that would be something that'd be good for me because i have seen it to be so transformational for many people now not people that had had well actually later on i did meet quite a few people that had had been uh, drug addicts and alcoholics and stuff and were rendered sober by just doing plant medicine and that was when I started to hear those stories, I think that was like, oh, wait, this is this is perhaps something different, you know, but I had to really go inside and really pray about it. And it wasn't something that I set out to pursue, but I just kind of kept my ears open and was just, just curious about it to learn more. And if I met someone that had done it, I would ask them to explain to me what happened and things like that. But it's, um, you know, I have such a... <laughs> a healthy respect for my past and the things that I went through that, I mean, there's just, if you try to get me to take a sip of wine or like take a hit off a joint or do some Coke or something, it's just, 
That is never going to happen ever, ever in this lifetime. Who knows? Maybe next life I'll be able to drink a few beers here and there and keep it chill. But in this one, I fucking know because I've already lived it. You know what I mean? I already tried to manage and control drinking and using drugs. And I mean, I, for, you know, I did that for 15 years. I was always trying to find a way to control it. So the idea of possibly triggering that, uh, phenomenon of craving and letting the tiger out of the cage is just absolutely terrifying. And, you know, who knows, maybe at this point in my life, after all the work I've done and after some plant medicine, maybe just maybe every couple of years I could have a glass of wine at Christmas. But if I can't, I'm fucked. So I'm not going to risk it. It's just where I came from is so destitute and so painful and so degrading and demoralizing and so lost and so dark. Um, <laughs> there's just no way that I would ever take that chance. So I had to make sure that plant medicines weren't that chance. And I had to become really convinced. And that was just having to do with a lot of self-inquiry and really starting to ask more people about the experience of sober people doing that and what the results were and does anyone ever go off the rails and as far as I could tell it's quite contrary that most people that have had drug abuse problems that do iboga mostly like with opiates it seems to be iboga but alcoholics and other drug addicts and stuff um, of varying degrees of severity will do plant medicines and they're sober now like they didn't go to rehab, they didn't go to AA, they just, they did plant medicine, they had this awakening. And it started to occur to me that really in traditional recovery, the way that I was able to recover from my addictions, which were, which were multiple, uh, was by having a spiritual experience and surrendering my life to God. And it's just one day I prayed and something absolutely phenomenal and indescribable happened to me. I was just set free and there's, there's no possible way that that was anything other than God hearing my plea and my petition to be rescued from that bondage. And I was. And so I had a spiritual experience that then remove the need for drugs and alcohol because I found some sense of connection to self and connection to something greater than myself. And that power did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And then I spent the next 22 years pursuing that relationship with God and pursuing any and all forms of personal development and healing on all the levels of my persona. And I think with plant medicines and not for everyone. And I would never, I would never tell anyone who's like sober to go do plant medicines. Like that is some shit you really have to figure out yourself. I would not want to hold that responsibility karmically in case somebody is not in a place where they could do it and really have the wholesome intention and have integrity and why they're doing it and how they do it. But for me, it's like, I look back on the, even the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous and where that, and that's where most people in the world have been able to escape from alcoholism and addiction the world over. I mean, it's the most successful method that's ever existed in recorded history by far. And it's had such an influence on 
not just even Western culture now, but world culture. It's just the phenomenon of those teachings is just absolutely um, transformed society. And it's the basis of all group therapy and so many different things because it's not religious, it's spiritual, you know, but how it came to be. And I was, I was telling this to Melissa, um, who was unfamiliar with the story as most people aren't uh, unless they're, you know, sober or something. But um, the co-founder of AA went, checked himself or got checked into a hospital because he was just, you know, hope to die alcoholic. And while he was going through DTs, he had this, what he called a white light experience and the room was filled with light and a wind, a holy wind blew through the room and he saw God and the guy was rendered sober in that moment, you know, and he was like, really like hope to die, gnarly, gnarly alcoholic. And so he realized that a spiritual experience was the answer to that affliction and set about to meet someone else. And, you know, it's a whole long story, but that's the the basis of how most people on the planet that are able to escape, which is a very small minority of people that are so afflicted, that's how they get out. That's how they find redemption is by having a spiritual experience that is usually brought about in the process of learning the spiritual tools and principles within the 12 steps and applying those to your life. And those start to become integrated into your DNA, into who you are. You learn how to be honest with yourself. You uh, you learn how to make restitution to the people you've harmed. You learn how to inventory yourself. You turn your will and your life over to God. You come to believe that there's another power other than your power. You begin to pray and meditate every day. And finally, toward the end of that process, you begin to live a life of service where your life is devoted to helping others. And that is the way that you keep yourself out of that abject self-centeredness and selfishness that is inherent to being in the lower animal state of addiction. And so that's how you start to deal with your trauma and how you start to deal with your lack of ability to manage your life and operate within the world as a functional person is through that spiritual experience. But that for most of us is a really long drawn out process. So plant medicines to me, adding it into my journey. I've already been having a spiritual experience, just little crumb by crumb by crumb with a few peaks here and there, you know, a deep meditation or just, I've had like a couple of times where I've definitely had a visitation from some sort of aspect of God, you know, which is like, oh, wow, the room just got really trippy. There's something happening here, you know, mm-hmm. and you just know that it's that. Um, but deepening that spiritual experience through ayahuasca has been absolutely transformative because it's allowed me to go deeper into that. And as I just described before, you know, really get to the root of things. It's, you know, in therapy, you can do a lot because you can sit with someone and kind of tell them about your life. And they go, you know what, you might not see this, but you ever thought about the fact that because your dad did this and your uncle did this and mommy did this, that that's why you do this. And you're like, oh shit. But that could take a long, long time in one ayahuasca ceremony. I mean, I've had years worth of therapy in five or six hours. And I'm just like, ding, 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 ding. All the dots are connected. Go, oh shit. This is why, not only why I am the way I am and why some of these habits and patterns have ingrained themselves in my character, but also in most, if not all cases, shown how to undo it or have it just be undone for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's a powerful adjunct to all of the fundamental growth and maturity that comes with walking a straight and narrow path of recovery and 
and learning about and applying spiritual principles to your life. So I feel like it was perfect timing for me because I felt really solid in my desire to live as a ostensibly sober person, you know. But then also after ayahuasca, I was like, shit, I can trust myself. You know, I trust myself to make sound decisions. I'm not, as I said, I didn't leave ceremony and be like, oh, I bet I could drink some beers now. Like, no, I just, nope, still can't do that. But I started uh, microdosing psilocybin. I go, wow, God, I get a lot of work done. I'm very focused and creative on the days that I do that. And um, I've microdosed LSD and ketamine and other things intentionally with the purpose. And when I say micro, I mean micro as an um, barely discernible effect and absolutely able to drive and, you know, go to court or do, you know, like <laughs> just be completely, actually even feel almost more clear and more sober, you know, but I would have never done that before. Like two years ago, if you're like, Hey, you want to microdose LSD? I'm like, fuck now, are you crazy? I'm not taking LSD. Right. But I started to, you know, just meet different people in different circles and see the efficacy of some of these things, especially as it pertains to, neuroplasticity, which is what I was really doing last night in that quantum field was going in and using intention and creating neuroplasticity and rewiring my brain. Mm. And you have the ability to do that. Um, I think with a lot of different medicines in the psychedelic realm. So Mm. it's a really, it's a strange place to be. And also I had to really own the fact that I could be judged negatively by people within my social circle that know me as a person that's sober and they might think now I'm not, or can I still, is it still valid to say, Oh, I'm, you know, I've been sober for 22 years. It's like, I don't know. Where's the line, right? I guess it depends what your definition is. I mean, if you're talking strictly, then I guess not, but I still consider myself that way. And I also had to look at my attachment to that identity of Hmm. like, it's a, you know, when you're sober for a long time, it becomes a badge of honor because you meet some, if I met you and you were sober, I'd be like, how much time you got? You're like four years. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I got 22 years. Right. It's just, you know, the ego will feed on any stupid shit it can. (laughs) You know, it's like, like, you, I mean, listen, it is an accomplishment, but it's more of a gift than it is something you do for yourself in my experience. So it's it's not like I'm sober out of virtue. I'm sober out of necessity. Mm-hmm. It's not like I did it because I'm a great guy. I did it because I was going to die and I hated my life and I wanted to slip my fucking wrist, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I get some credit for at least having the will to live and, and have a more um, complete sense of this existence but it's um, it's something that's been done for me. So, you know, I had to really look at my attachment to that. And it was, it was kind of scary doing a podcast about it because I talk about recovery a lot. I know a lot of sober people listen to my podcast and, and I've been very active in recovery for a long time in different ways. And I've worked with a lot of other guys and helping them along the path. And so, you know, it was like, oh shit, get ready. You might face some opposition here, but uh, you know, there might have been something said behind my back, but no one seemed to bust my balls personally. And if they did, you know, it's just, as I said, I learned to trust myself and I know my motives are pure and I know I'm evolving and changing and growing. I don't feel stuck and I don't feel like at all that I'm in regression, like going backwards in terms of my level of consciousness. It's abundantly clear to me that my level of consciousness and clarity and awareness about everything within my experience is going up and becoming higher all the time. Mm in conjunction with a couple 
medicine experiences and all the other work that I continue to do, you know, all the meditation and all of the just boots on the ground, just humble, <laughs> praying to God, surrendering to God, just doing my best to be of service, to be in integrity as much as I can and all of that. I want to go back to that day where you talk about having this spiritual experience and have a couple questions that came up, which were, you know, did you, were you raised religious for one? Did you have a concept of God before that happened? And did that change for you after this experience? Was it, did it turn out to be something totally different than you thought or what was your relationship like? Fortunately, I think (laughs) for me, I wasn't raised with any religion or any spirituality to speak of. It wasn't, um, my family wasn't anti-spiritual or, you know, they didn't talk shit about religious people or church or anything. It just wasn't, just wasn't part of either side of my family. My parents divorced when I was maybe two or three. And I don't remember anyone ever going to church for any reason, except my dad remarried and his um, second wife after my mom was um, Catholic. And I think, like she took me to church a couple of times because I think she went here and there, but it wasn't like I had to join or anything like that. So um, I would say I probably had an aversion to it just because I was a little stoner kid that listened to Black Sabbath and was just like, fuck the man, fuck church. You know what I mean? It's just, I think I was just anti anything, you know, other than sex, drugs and rock and roll. And so it was um, definitely not a part of my life, but. How old were you when this happened? Uh, I was 26 when I got sober. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but what, what happened was, is really interesting. Actually, there's, you know, this whole connection to the East that I have, I've been practicing Kundalini yoga for a number of years and I practice Vedic meditation. I'm like really drawn into the kind of Vedic worldview and Hinduism to some degree. And I was just like, I have a certain visceral connection to the, the Eastern teachings of India specifically. And I think how that came to be was on my dad's side of the family, his two sisters and his mother, my grandmother, started going to India to visit the ashram of a a saint who has since passed named Satya Sai Baba, dude with the fro and an orange robe, who was later accused of molesting kids and all this weird shit. So I I don't know. But when they were going there, it seemed very pure and everything was on the up and up and uh, they would come back and tell me these stories of how he would manifest Vibhuti in their hand right in front of them. And he would, you know, he'd have an empty palm and just a gold ring would like fly out of his palm into your hand and just crazy shit and doing bilocation where he would be speaking to one group of people in the ashram and at the same time be in a different room, you know, three buildings away talking to another group of people or would be speaking to a room full of people after darshan that were international and each person in the room would hear what he was saying in their native language even though yeah. he didn't speak those languages on record and just things like that and i knew that the family members that were relaying these mystical stories to me weren't crazy and they weren't liars so i i just was struck with the idea that there was some truth to that and that was very fascinating to me just out of a a curious place, just the miracles that the the cities that some of these sages are able to perform. And I've since come to understand that it's there's a lot of them that have been able to do this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, any more enlightened than the rest of us. They've just accessed and harnessed a certain way of 
manipulating physical reality in a way that's un- uncommon nowadays. And so anyway, I was really intrigued by this. And so they gave me like a little Satya Sai Baba book. And then my cousin Aaron gave me a book that's become one of my favorite books. It's called I Am That by Nisargadatta Maharaj. And I remember trying to read that. I'd be all high and I would just be like, God, there's the answers in this I Am That book. Like I knew it was in there and it's really about non-duality, you know? And now I read that book and I'm like, duh, like I totally get it because I've, you know, been working on that framework for a long time. But that that book, I think really got me, even though I could only read a couple pages of it and I didn't fully get it, but it just showed me that there was another side of reality because I was so deeply entrenched in the earth plane and just in survival mode and just living at that base instinctual level and didn't have access to the higher realms unless I was able to use drugs that lowered the negative emotional and mental Mm -hmm. state to where the real state of being, which is actually just being sober, existed. So it's like when you get high on those type of drugs, your consciousness is not elevated. It's just that the lower states of consciousness are blocked off. And so what you experience is a sense of being high, but it's actually just how you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but that later became clear because you don't really get high. If you think about it, if you take Coke, like you think you're high, you're not high. You're just like, you're distracting yourself from the pain that you normally experience. So and you come up with all kinds of great ideas on how to solve the world's problems <laughs> that make no sense the next day. That's the difference between ayahuasca and like doing coke or heroin or crystal meth. It's like the next day, the shit actually makes sense. And you're like, oh yeah, no, that's still still good. Mm. When you're on like street drugs or the kind of derivative lower energy drugs, the insights you have are rarely, if ever, useful later. So back to Sai Baba. So I'm strung out on heroin. I kept getting off it. I'd go kick. I'd do what I call a train spotting. I'd have someone lock me up in a room somewhere without car keys and why not have even have a car? So there's no need for keys, but I'd sequester myself somewhere where I would get too sick to get out and get any more basically. And um, that was my way of like kicking. And every time I did, I'm like, I'm never doing that again, ever, 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 never again. I'm just going to drink and smoke weed. That was always my big plan. And so the times in between started to get shorter and shorter and wow. shorter and shorter until it was like I would go kick. And then a week later, as soon as I felt good, I'd be back on it again. And I was like, oh man, this is not going to end well. And I started to just become very aware of the reality that it wasn't going to be long before I got rolled or robbed or arrested or OD'd or, you know, I was like getting to that place where it was getting real sketchy and dangerous. And, um, and I was you know, hanging around with people that were just really dark street people and, you know, gangs and just all this weird shit. So anyway, um, I started, I got those little Sai Baba books and I started praying to Sai Baba and <laughs> I felt totally stupid, but I didn't have, any, I didn't have anything else to, to work with, you know, and he had done these miracles and helped other people. And I thought maybe he can help me. So my prayer was like, can I just smoke weed? Could you, orange robe, man. Can I just like blaze and just, I swear to God, I won't do anything else, but I just, I want to smoke weed all day, every day, all night, every night, 24 seven. And then I'm good. Cause I, I kind of was, you know, I, I love smoking weed. I mean, it made me, you know, dysfunctional and numb and lazy and tired. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was no way to live ultimately, but I could still kind of find some relief. And, um, 
that prayer didn't work. You know, I kept at it. And then when I went into that treatment center, the experience I described on February 15th, 1997 was checked in this place, just hammered. I mean, it was one of the best drunks of my whole life, to be honest. I was just shit-faced drunk and just having a blast because it was like, it's like I was going up in front of the firing squad. I was just like, mm-hmm. you know what? Fuck it. I'm done. You know? And wow. you know, my mom drove me out to this rehab and uh, I remember like I was in the parking lot. I still had some beer. She let me stop and get some beer at the liquor store and I was pounding them in her car the whole way. And I was like, bloop, 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 you know, Whoa. in the parking lot, like, like, uh, like, uh, hyperventilating my last joints, you know, and I just, I'm like, I got to get as fucked up as possible just to walk through that door. And then finally they were, they were, um, you know, my mom, they're calling my mom, like, dude, we're closing. Like, is this kid coming or what? And she's like, you have to go. And she dropped me off, came to the next morning and was like, oh shit, what have I done? And just woke up all hungover. Like, oh my God, I'm in rehab, dude. What am I, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I was withdrawing from so many different things oh, too. I was man. just a wreck. So I think as I recall, you know, it's all a bit blurry, but it makes the story sound good if I just stick with this because the story I always tell, but something to the effect of like going in the counselor's office of the nurse and be like, Hey, I'm freaking out. Like, what do I do? And thinking I could get some medication or something. And they're like, yeah, I mean, you're, cause I'd already kicked heroin a week before. So I didn't qualify for Suboxone or something to help you withdraw, you know, um, easily or more easily. I don't think there's ever an easy way, but um, except maybe Boga, <laughs> from what I understand. But anyway, they're like, no, what we do here, Luke, is we just pray. I was like, really, dog? Like that? Pray. Okay. Because I prayed to Sai Baba and I, w- I couldn't just smoke weed. It didn't work. I tried prayer, you know, and just pray, pray to well, God of your understanding. And I was like, okay, well, I'm left with no other choice. And I went to my room and I kneeled in front of the bed and, wow. and I just said, I surrender. Just... So quite a pregnant pause. I just said, please help me, man. I can't, I can't do this anymore, you know? And it wasn't like anything happened, you know? I wish it was that the walls started reverberating and the curtains blew and I was filled with a golden light through all my chakras or something, but it was just... I was still miserable, still in pain, still sad, still depressed, still broken in every way possible. But in that moment, the desire and craving to drink and use is completely gone. And for someone like me, where where I had come from, that had never been gone for five minutes. You know, I was just always on 24-7. And I would wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and do drugs. I mean, I couldn't breathe a sober breath at all for a long, long time. And so as the days wore on there, and it was really difficult and everything, but I sensed that something had been done for me because I wasn't like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to run away and find a liquor store. You know, it's like I surrendered into that and just was like, I know I can't help myself. And it seems as though whatever this thing is that I asked for help has already helped me. And that was the mustard seed that had been planted that gave me the curiosity and the desire to find out what that was. And that's what I'm doing here. What is that? How can I have more of that? How can I avail more of myself 
to that majesty, that miraculous, loving, all-knowing power that some of us just call God. It's like, God, if you can do that, that's the unthinkable, that's impossible. And it did that. Maybe it could help me with anything that I present to it. If I can present it in an earnest and humble enough manner to allow it in, you know, it's like, because we're given free will, it's our karmic gift to be able to work our way through the levels of consciousness from hopefully low to high as you go. Although many people regress, I'm sure I have, um, we're given that free will as a gift. And it's a strange gift because when you give the free will back to God, then God begins to use your will for you in a sense. You know, so it's like, I still have my will. I want a big house. I want a hot wife. I want, you know, I want a car. I want happiness. I want success. I want everything, material, non-material. I want it all. I want peace and serenity and I want to help other people and have an impact and all those things. But it's like my desire has to be met with the will of that creator. Because my will alone is limited in its scope of understanding and possibility. And it will be short-sighted. I'll sell myself short. And so in that moment, I surrendered my will in favor of a higher will that was more invested in, in truth and integrity. And that was... And that was the beginning. But then in order to keep that, I had to really, really dive in and not fuck around. You know, and I was one of the lucky ones. You know, a lot of people go to rehab. I'm not going to listen to these guys, man. You know, you still have that defiance. But I was just at that sweet spot of vulnerability, teachability, humility. It's just like, I'm, I have no more answers. I'm done. I am done. I never, ever, ever want to drink again or any, you know, or anything else. And so because I had that sincere desire and a willingness to do whatever it took, you know, they, they gave me a plan of action in 28 days. When you leave here, here's the things that you have to do. And I, I didn't balk. I did everything that I was told, you know, it was maybe the first time in my life that some sort of authoritative agency of some kind suggested or told me what I was to do. And I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, Cause the alternative was so excruciating. Mm. So that's the story of <laughs> a boy named Luke. Wow. That is, um, that's so powerful. And I think definitely in working with this medicine and, you know, I've been at Soltara since November 1st, we're in 2019 and it's, we're now in December, um, nearing, nearing Christmas. But one thing that I, have definitely learned in my last seven weeks here working with the medicine and my time here as a guest in May of this year. I guess I'm, I got to sit with you last night and that was ceremony number 11 for me in the last six months, I guess. Damn. And, yeah. That's a lot. Um, and it's a paradox, man like surrender is such a paradox. It's like, we have to get to that rock bottom. And like you said, almost like give away our, 
or offer. It's not a giving away. It's like an offering of the free will, almost like you're putting it on an altar of the divine. It's like, there's nothing left to do. I, I personally have had moments where I was crumpled crying in the bottom of the shower being like earth just fucking swallow me up like I don't want to be here anymore and everyone's telling me how good I have it and I don't feel it and that like makes me feel so much more shame because it's like look how much you have to be happy for and like you come from a good family and you have money and you're you know you're not in a third world country and you have food on the table and you're like damn it they're right then why do I feel this way I'm totally um, broken. And I never, I never really had a problem with alcohol personally. It does run in, you know, I think my grandfather had issues with alcohol, but I had this one day a couple summers ago where things in my life, I, I live in New York city and things in my life had gotten just horrible. I had just, I had been wrought with a whole bunch of different things all in one week. Just things were going wrong. I mean, my car got towed and I was already depressed. I tried to find like my third therapist and just wasn't jiving with any of them. And of course it's like impossible to find one that takes your insurance and all, all of this stuff. It was just horrific. And, um, I had all the tools. Like I had been reading The Secret and all of these spiritual texts. I came from a family that had primed me with all these things. And I was just, I remember desperately staring at the pages of, of all this wisdom and just not feeling any of it. And that was the most terrifying part because it, I just felt so disconnected and so hopeless. And I couldn't talk to anybody about it because I felt like at that point, you start running those stories in your head. And my family had been there for me through my roller coasters of emotions. And at some point, you just don't want to alarm people anymore. And you kind of feel like the boy who cried wolf. It's just like, oh, she's going through another one of her emotional ups and downs. Hallie just feels really deeply. And so... I really felt like nobody knew how bad it was. And I remember this one evening, I was like, all right, I'm just going to take, I think I was reading the law of attraction. I was like, I'm going to take the law of attraction. I'm going to go sit at a like little bar across the street, just have a glass of wine and relax. And I'm going to read and I'm going to take notes and I'm going to try to absorb this and get better habits. I'd been journaling every day and I wanted to maintain that. And I remember... I was reading at the bar and this man came up to me and kind of st struck up a conversation. Oh, what are you reading? And it felt really good to ta be talking to someone. And there was something about the anonymity and, and a stranger because I was hiding how bad things were from all of my friends. They were trying to reach me. I wasn't really answering my texts. So survival, right? The, the, the instinct, the need for connection. And I just started chatting with this person and another person came and we were all just having a great conversation. And I remember, let's have another glass of wine. Let's have another glass of wine. Oh, bartender, keep her glass full. And you know, I, I didn't really drink much. So it, that was just not a really good idea, but it was the first time I felt that levity in a really long time. And 
my two promises to myself for my self-care that I was trying to improve was to take baths every day, really like nourish my body and then journal. So I, I don't remember what time it was when I got home because my phone had died and thank goodness I got home safely um, because I, I completely don't remember going up the stairs or unlocking my apartment or any of it. But I knew that I needed to take my bath and I, I needed to write in my journal. And it still makes me really sad to think about because the next morning I woke up and I must have been like slipping or falling in the bathtub and I just had like bruises. I was unsure about their origin. And I flipped open my journal and the words on that page were the most horrific, illegible chicken scratch hatred that I've ever seen. I mean, it was it was a step away from wishing death upon yourself. You know, it's just like, how could I have I'm you know, I'm in this state right now. This is so embarrassing. I'm trying to make things better. See, I knew I wasn't, you know, worth anything. And I remember the next day, like I did not leave my apartment. I felt more isolation, more pain than ever before. And I thought, I just kind of laid in my bed, you know, it was one bedroom apartment. I don't live with, I didn't have roommates and all my family lives far away. And I was like, if I died today, I wonder how long it would take for someone to find me. Would people even know? I've been avoiding everybody. The weight of that story, like how insignificant you feel when you say that to yourself was like, that was my moment. That was my moment. I was like, dude, something's got to give here. So, um, you know, that wasn't terribly long ago. And I think that I was in an addictive cycle with my own suffering like this, like this, like this. And I think a lot of that came from childhood stuff. And um, I know by no fault of anyone's, my parents had a divorce when I was nine, a three-year custody battle. And that really fucked with my sense of security and, and trusting people because there were lawyers involved. And nine years old, I had my own lawyer because it had to be you know, separate from theirs. And we were just like, it, it was it was a mess. So of course that made me super vigilant um, my whole life and the suffering. So um, that was part of what I had to address when I first came here was my own addiction to suffering. And I think a lot of us have that and, and we don't even realize, but it's a chemical thing. Damn straight. Yeah. There's a, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. There's a great um, book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks and he uncovers this uh, concept um, called the upper limit where if you've not experienced liberation, freedom, happiness at high levels and you have gotten addicted to those lower states of um, felt being that there's this ceiling that you can't surpass. It's like you literally can't be happy and nothing will make you happy because you don't have the capacity to reach that because you have the self-imposed 
sort of governor on your capacity to experience joy and fulfillment and meaning in those things. It's a really, it's a fascinating book. I really hit home. I was like, oh my God, because I could sense there've been so many times where I, I'm on the brink of actually feeling like I'm okay and life is positive and there's hope and faith that things are going to continue to get better. And it's like, no, 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 Luke, don't, don't fool yourself. You, mm. You're meant to, that's for those people. Mm. You're meant to be depressed <laughs> and have a sense of lack. So just stick with that. Don't even try to, you know, jump in the deep end of the pool. Just keep it, keep it surface and just do your best to survive, you know, that kind of thing. But again, like with so many of these things, when you become aware of it, that's the insight. Ah, I see what that pattern is now. Well, what would happen if I was just super goddamn happy? Mm. Maybe I can be that way, you know, mm-hmm. and start to explore that because you do get addicted to being miserable. It's mm-hmm. just, it's crazy. It just becomes the modus operandi. It's just, that's just how I am. Everything has to be a struggle and a fight and it has to be frustrating and disappointing and have to be afraid and have anxiety and be sad and all of those. Yeah. Those I think feelings. we all know somebody like that probably. And to take it a step further, I think what would it be like to be happy all the time, but then to not attach to being happy is like taking it the step further. Right. Um, because if we attach to being happy, then it becomes something we can lose. And then there's fear and then it starts that whole cycle again. So just, you know, this is what it is in this moment. I can find joy. I can find happiness in uh, talking to you, in this air conditioning, in this beautiful day that's outside, in the nourishing food that I'm going to eat. And that's in the now, you know, that's, that's in the right now. And I think for me, at least, that's been critical to this new path I'm on of, you know, it's not always perfect, but I'm learning. I'm learning to have fewer of those episodes where I feel like I'm worthless, you know, they're, they're far, few and far between now. And I think that comes from cultivating awareness, mindfulness, and just staying in the present as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Hot damn. Hot damn. Luke's story. Thank you so much for being on the thought room. I feel like we could riff forever, quite honestly. That tends to happen. I know. Um, (laughs) So we'll just have to rendezvous another time somewhere in the for world. Sure, for sure. But before we hop off, was there anything else you, one, wanted to share about your week? And two, how can people connect with you and find you online? I think what I'd like to share about the week is that um, there are many windows that uh, open into the mansion. And ayahuasca is one of them. And there are many others. So find your window. Mm. And where you can find me, social media wise, most active on Instagram at Luke Story, S T O R E Y. I constantly do lives and stories in there of all of my interviews and hijinks and things like that. My podcast is the Life Stylist Podcast. Um, I don't know whose will come out first, but there will be, it's probably going to be a two-part series or maybe even three depending on how long it ends up being about the whole experience here at Sultara and I also did one of those about Rhythmia um, earlier this year it was a, that was a three-parter it was like six hours worth of stuff there's just 
you know, a lot happens in a week. <laughs> Even to boil it down to six hours is hard. Uh, and then my website is lukestory.com and all my videos and speaking appearances and the podcast show notes and all that kind of stuff is there. That's kind of the mothership. But maybe the podcast is the best place to just kind of dive in and find out what I'm up to. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.